In our own confession of faith, we're taught the importance of personal, private worship. And I think that's something that every Christian ought to take very seriously. God calls us to personally, privately worship him every day. Every one of you should have a secret trysting place with God. A place where you meet with God and God meets with you day by day. But our Presbyterian forefathers, they went much further than that. And they not only said that we as individuals ought to worship God privately in our own homes every day. They taught that collectively, as families, we ought to worship God together in our homes every day. And so in 1647, the General Assembly of the Church in Scotland, they agreed an act and they called it Directions Concerning the Secret and Private Worship of God. And it has been republished in the back of the confession and I would heartily recommend it to you. Our worship of God consists in a private manner in prayer and meditation on the word of God. And as we pray and as we meditate upon the word of God, the Lord comes and draws nigh to us and blesses us. And as we've often said before, I've never met anyone who prayed and who meditated upon the word of God daily, who backslid. Now have you ever met anyone who daily prayed and meditated on the word of God who backslid? You might have, but I have not. In all my years in the ministry, I've never met anyone who kept that discipline up, who walked away from God in such a manner. We will stand privately as we, st we will stand publicly as we stand privately. And if that is true for us individually, it is absolutely true for us as families as well. And there are many families and they are in trouble. And they're in trouble because privately they never had an altar where the family worshipped God. Matthew Henry called Psalm 101 the householder's psalm. And it's a lovely psalm. We're not going to take time to go down it verse by verse. But we're going to use the idea that's in it to introduce to us this, this collective idea of family worship. And of course it sets a wonderful example for the master of a good family. For the head of the family. In verse 2 the, the psalmist said I will walk within my house. With a perfect heart. That's something important. We are outside what we are inside. We'll never walk with God or right outside. Until we are walking with God or right inside. And walking with God with the right heart. With the right spirit within the home. And of course Matthew Henry applied this to the heads of households. And he said the heads of households should study and apply Psalm 101. Verse 1 reminds us of the need for mercy and for judgment in the home. Now some masters are very zealous in judgment but they forget about mercy. Heads of families have to lead their families. They have to lead them in love. They have to lead them in righteousness. They have to lead them with mercy and with judgment. 
Sometimes we read the history of the Puritans and, and we get this picture in our mind that they were austere, that they were severe. Uh, all of those things as we look upon them. But they were far from it. They warned against soreness and countenance with the family. This is William Gouge. Threatening and reviling in words. Too hard handling, too severe correction, too much restraint of liberty, too small allowance of things needful. If you're all of those things as a father, maybe even a mother, you're not taking your counsel and advice from the Puritans, that's for sure. All of that restrictive uh, judgment in the home, I know what it leads to. It leads to rebellion. And it leads to anarchy. In verse 2 the psalmist highlighted the need for walking with a perfect heart. Now this is not sinless perfection that he's talking about. We don't believe in sinless perfection. We'll never be sinless till we get to glory. The meaning here is you walk with integrity of heart. Integrity of life. It's done in a wholehearted manner. So you teach the word of God diligently, zealously, wholeheartedly. That's the meaning of it all. The whole heart is in it. And to lead anything, your whole heart has to be in it. If the whole heart of the minister is not in the work, well, I wouldn't expect your heart to be in it. If the whole heart of the session is not in the work, I wouldn't expect the heart of the members to be in it. And let's apply it to the home. If the whole heart of the head of the house is not in it, you can't expect his wife the mother of his children, to be in it. We have to be committed to it wholeheartedly. Walking, walking it says here, with a perfect heart within the home. And so when this is applied to the heads of households, and usually that's the husband and the father, though not necessarily, because I, I know there are extending, ex, extenuating circumstances that, that will prohibit that in some homes, but the ordinary rule is that the father is the head of the home. And if God has put you in such a position in the home, then you have a responsibility to walk wholeheartedly before your family that you might lead them in the ways of the Lord and in the things of God. And in order for you to lead others, you need the Lord yourself. You need, you need private worship before you can go to collective worship. You need to be walking with God before others will follow your walk for God. Now let me ask you tonight, dear father, how is your walk with God? Dear mother, how is your walk with God? Is it with the whole heart that you're given to lead your family in the things of God? Thomas Manton wrote of verse 2, If a man be truly holy, he will show it at home as well as abroad. You know there are some people... Some free Presbyterian people who appear very holy outside and they're not a bit holy inside. Not at all in their homes. I wouldn't dare apply it to anybody else. I'm going to start here within our own church families. A Christian has to walk abroad as he is at home, not the other way around. In verse 3, David makes mention 
of guarding the purity of his home and his family. And the word wicked here refers to that which would corrupt morals. Don't allow anything to cleave. Don't allow anything to stick to you that would corrupt the morals of your family. Don't allow it to happen. I don't think I need to say to any of the young parents that are in the gathering here tonight. You know, when I was a a, a boy growing up, no, not when I was a boy growing up. When my children were young growing up, that's more like it. Uh, It was safe to put them down in front of a Disney video. Or film. It was safe to do that. You, you thought it was, it was childish. It was innocent. It was U-rated. You couldn't do that today. There's subliminal messages. And some not subliminal messages. Even in Disney. And even you parents. You just watch what's going on over there at the present time. And there's nothing innocent about it. Whatsoever. I don't see why so many Christian parents want to spend thousands of pounds taking their family to Disneyland to corrupt their morals. Doesn't make sense to me whatsoever. John Bunyan wrote The Holy War, a very famous allegory. And it's about a, a city, a city that was besieged by the enemy, the giant Diabolus. He wants to take control of man's soul. And of course the king's soldiers. They won't let him in. And Bunyan described this city as having invincible walls. That's the soul. Invincible walls and invincible gates. And the only way that the enemy could get into the city. Is if the inhabitants of the city. Would open ear gate or eye gate to him. And of course that's exactly what happened. And Bunyan saw it in his day and in his generation that we need to guard eye gate, we need to guard ear gate, lest that which enters in will corrupt good morals. And that's what's happening today, parents, that's what is happening. Your children have access to phones, to tablets, to the internet that you never had, that I never had. All of your mobile phones is just one click away from pornography. That's how ready access it is if you're not careful. Watch eye gate, watch ear gate. One of the greatest ways the Puritans taught to uh, keep out the oblibus uh, was to maintain family worship. And they believed that not only was that the way to maintain the city, but it was the way to revive the work of God. We talk about Reformation, men and women, as if it's something that happens in a foreign country. Reformation is something that starts in our homes. It's something that starts in our families. It's something that some need to start tonight. Not next week, not next year, not next month need to start tonight and to put these biblical principles into practice. It's well been said the kingdom of Satan is built upon two twin pillars. The twin pillars of ignorance and error. Ignorance and error. And the neglect of family worship was so regarded by the Puritans as one of the greatest sins to to open the floodgates of ungodliness 
into the, the Christian homes. Uh, and thus, we even read in history, homes that didn't have family worship were put away from the Lord's table. You know, I was thinking about over the past week, I'll repeat that again. Homes that didn't have family worship were not allowed to come to the Lord's table. Would we have the Lord's table here and on along if we were to apply that? Would we take 25% of it? 50% of it? How would it work out? I'm sure we would reduce it dramatically. We call ourselves the, the, the reformers. We call ourselves uh, Protestants and there's so many, there's so many in Ulster, they're nominal Protestants and they gladly take that badge. And I have no problem with that because I gladly take it. But you know, in truth, we're a pale reflection of what the Protestant reformers were. I looked at Thomas Manton in the past week and he wrote these words. Religion was first hatched in families. And there the devil seeks to crush it. The families of the patriarchs were all the church God had in the world for a time. And therefore I suppose when Cain went out from Adam's family, he is said to go out from the face of the Lord. Not wonderful. If you leave family worship, it's like going out from the face of the Lord. It's like leaving the Lord himself. To leave family worship off is to leave the Lord off himself. And so they, they produced this directory for family worship. There are some modern variations on it. But I think everyone in all along is educated enough to read it and to apply it. And I would commend it to you. They, they, these men, they knew the blessing of having a church in every home. And they sought to reinforce it by church discipline. That's amazing to me. The responsibility to call the family together for worship lay, in the master, lay with the master of the home. Psalm 101 and verse 2. The head of the household. The normal rule of events, yes, that was the, the father. But not exclusively. And that duty is not diminished with the passing of years. There are many men and they have discarded this duty and they give it over to their wives. Now I know the wives could do it just equally as well and equally as good if not better. But that's not the point. Brother this is for you today. This is your job. This is your work before the Lord. We read in Ephesians 6 and 4. And ye fathers provoke not your children to wrath. But bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We talk about that lovely word admonition. But the word admonition just simply means instruction. That's why I wanted you to sing Psalm 34 tonight. That lovely opening praise. Uh, where the, the psalmist said come ye children and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Instruction. Fathers are to instruct their children. Fathers are to nurture their children in the things of God. I know every father here in this meeting tonight, you are good at nurturing your family physically, economically. There's not one way that your family is not looked after and attended to. But here's a different way. Nurturing, instructing them in the things of the Lord. I think of Job. We've thought of that 
passage in, in days gone by. Job 1 and verse 5. Job got up early in the morning. And he, he, he rose to offer sacrifice unto God. And to sanctify his children. You know what the word sanctify means? It means to dedicate them. We dedicate our children to the Lord. Not just once in a lifetime. We do it every day. We're giving them back to the Lord every day. As grandparents, we're giving our children, our children's children, back to the Lord every day. It's not a day we don't do it. Matthew Henry wrote that men should bring up their children as Christians. You know, there are some parents and they say, well, my son or daughter is not a Christian. And what can I say to them? So what are you going to do? What are you going to do as a father or a mother? Are you going to bring them up as pagans? You bring them up as Christians. I am not saying you can make them a Christian. There's a world of difference between the two ideas. But you bring them up as Christians. Don't allow the world to bring up your children. You bring up your children for the Lord. Bring them up as as Christians. What else would we bring them up as? Those directions are, are very interesting. Top of the list was prayer and praise. Prayer and praise. The importance of those two aspects has not diminished with the passings of years. Now, there's certain guidance given for prayer in the directory. I've just summarised them. There's to be personal confession of your own sin and the sin of the family. Don't pretend you're perfect. I don't think any, any true parent would ever pretend to be perfect in front of their children. They would be fools so to do so. There was to be an outpouring to God for grace. There was to be thanksgiving for mercies for the family and for the church collectively. And then there was to be petitions for all of the needs of the family, both the temporal needs, both the spiritual needs, and for the church and for those who suffer righteousness, for for righteousness' sake. And all were to be encouraged to pray and to seek the Lord. You'll come and young children, they will, it's so lovely to hear young children pray. There's no, there's no self-consciousness. They, they just do it. Uh, and it's natural, it's the most natural thing in the world. Together you're talking to God. And there's no airs or graces, there's, there's no flowery rhetoric. It's just a child's heart talking to God. And that's the way we would always want it to be. I was reading Joel Bickey and Mark Jones's a commentary on this in their Puritan theology. And they, they summarised the advice on the directory of worship on prayer for children. And this is what, how they, they, they I suppose, modernised it. They said, be short. With few exceptions, don't pray more than five minutes. Tedious prayers do more harm than good. Don't teach in your prayer because God doesn't need your instruction. Be simple, but don't be shallow. Pray for, your, pray for things that your children know something about. So what do your children know about? Well, they know about the home. They know about what goes on in the home. They know about granny and granda. They know about auntie and uncle. They know about their cousins. They know about their friends. They know about their little school friends, their own little environment. They don't know about Ukraine and the battles over there, but they know about their own little personal battles. 
Just I, my advice to every parent is just be natural. And then teach your children to say with you the Lord's Prayer. And whatever is left out and what anybody has said, it's all put together in the Lord's Prayer. Teach, teach them it. Make them, you know, I love to hear children say the Lord's Prayer because they say it with such sincerity. And there's no, there's no restraint in them. Teach them how to say it. I believe there is so much blessing that comes to the people of God in such a way. And where a child is taught to pray at home, a child will learn to pray in church. Praise is not to be neglected either at the family altar. <clears throat> now, of course, in the directory, it talks about singing psalms. When I came here to Annalong, there was one man said to me, have you not got through with singing all of those psalms? Well, you know, 16 years on, I'm still learning new psalms. And I love the singing of the psalms more than I've ever done in my life. And I hope, I hope at least something of that love has, has uh, rubbed off on the congregation here as well. I believe it has. But you should also apply it in the home. In the Old Testament tells us, First uh, Chronicles chapter 16.9, and uh, again it's a repetition of the psalm, sing psalms unto him. Sing psalms unto him. Is that just for the Old Testament? No, because we read in the New Testament, James 5.13, let him sing psalms. This is the oldest hymn book in history, the Psalter. Why would we not use it? But I'm not only saying sing psalms, sing hymns. Sing choruses. Sing that which is appropriate for children and encourage them all to sing. Even if they're totally out of tune, out of sorts, don't know the words, teach them all to join in and to sing. Alongside prayer and praise was the time around the word of God. Meditation around the word of God. The whole battle of the Reformation was to make sure that everyone, young and old, had access to the word of God in their own mother tongue. Remember William Tyndale, that brave Protestant reformer who translated the New Testament from the original Greek and put it into English. And, and what we have even in our AV, the very foundation of it is still uh, taken from Tyndale's New Testament translation. He was taunted once by a Roman Catholic priest who said he would prefer to have the Pope's prayers and scriptures in the vernacular language. And Tyndale said this to him, if God spare my life er, many years, I will cause that boy that drives the plough to know more of the scriptures than you. Teach your children the scriptures. Have a system, read through the Bible. There's so, you know, there's so many lovely uh, tools for parents to use today. Go down and visit Beulah Bookshop and there's just so many lovely books there that you can use with your children and read to them the stories from the Bible and apply the truth from the Bible to them. The directory makes it plain that not only was the word to be read, it was to be applied. Don't make this book to be something that is a, sort of an, an academic exercise. This is a book that rules our lives, governs our lives. If the Bible says it, you're meant to do it. If the Bible prohibits it, you're not meant to do it. We have the commands. 
in the word of God. We have the prohibitions in the word of God. The exhortations in the word of God. The promises in the word of God. The duties in the word of God. If we deserve encouragement we'll get it. If we deserve rebuke we'll get it. Or, or admonition. And this was the father's job. To dispense this application from the word of God. In order for everybody to understand these great Protestant reformers, they said, you should have a conference then about what you've read and about what you've learned. What's conferencing? Conferencing is just talking. Family worship is not about preaching. You know, I said to every father or mother in the middle, you don't have to worry about getting a three-point sermon for the family altar. That's, that's not what it's meant to be. It's about reading, explaining, applying, talking, discussing. Even in a childlike language. But just breaking it down so small that your children, they can engage with you about it. They, they can talk to you about it. In applying these Bible truths, our forefathers also used the catechism. The shorter catechism was meant for those of lesser minds. Now those of us today, even in our latter years, we've grappled with the shorter catechism all of our lives. But it was for children. You can take your child and start them on the primer, the child's catechism, and go through it, even if you're going through it by rote with them. It's good for them to learn the history. It's good for them to learn the doctrine. And then when they come to the shorter catechism, with all of that wonderful vocabulary and, and the vernacular that's there, they'll be all ready, like uh, two or three classes ahead of everybody else. I, I want our Sunday school to be a place where the catechism is emphasised. I do want our children to leave the Sunday school without having at least attempted to finish the catechism. If you don't do it when you're 15, 16, I tell you you'll struggle to do it when you're 60. Not impossible, but you'll struggle. Keep at it. Some parents say they have no time. Do you know it's estimated that a child by preschool age in our Western world has watched 5,000 hours of television? Before they even get to school, they've watched 5,000 hours of television. Please don't say you have no time. If they've all the time to watch the television, and I'm not saying it's wrong to watch the television, I'm not advocating that at all. I'm just commenting upon the fact the hours that parents allow their children to spend in front of it, but there's no time to learn the catechism for Sunday. I believe, men and women, that one of the greatest ills of modern Christianity is a broken family altar. Remember in the days of Elijah, before the fire of God fell, he had to build the altar. Before we'll see reformation and reviving in our churches again, we're going to have to do a bit of building. It starts here. It starts in our homes, it starts in our families. Where we build the family altar once again. One of your children are grown and away from home. Well make sure as husband and wife you join together. Around God every day. Around his word and in his presence every day. 
and seek him for the children that have left the home. Seek him for the children's children that he has given to you. There will never be a day when there will not be something for you to seek the Lord about and to bring before Almighty God. I'm not saying to parents that you have to squeeze all of these uh, directions, these uh, that are in this directory into every single time you have a family altar that being a possible thing to do that would be like having a four course meal for breakfast, lunch and supper now you try that for a week and uh, you'll kill yourself so don't do the same thing spiritually with your children but pick out judiciously those things that are most important vary it make that family altar to be not a toil but a real blessing and your children will grow up Loving the worship of God. And have a desire to come to the worship of God. Thomas Brooks, he, he put it like this. A family without prayer is like a house without a roof. Open and exposed to all the storms of heaven. You wouldn't belong in fixing that hole in your roof, would you? Not where we live in around these parts. Well, fix Fix the family altar. Fix it tonight. Because it's causing no family altar. It's like a big gaping hole in your spiritual life. And instead of the protection of heaven, you're exposed to all the storms that are thrown upon you. May all our homes be well protected. May they be sheltered. As we seek again to build that family altar. May the Lord bless you each and every one. We're going to conclude singing this lovely children's hymn. Hymn number 70. We've often thought of. 700 sorry. We've often thought of this lovely.